to challenge you today. This is something that um, it's been sort of some things that uh, we've been going through recently here. Um, and uh, just in prayer, seeking God for some understanding on some things. Not that he ever gives total understanding, but seeking God for some understanding. Um, I believe God began to talk to me about some things. And I want to share that with you today because I believe no matter where you are, in your journey with with the Lord, you'll be you'll be able to glean something from this. But if you are just starting out, this is a great thing to understand before you get fully into your walk with Jesus Christ, because there are some myths out there in understanding what this Christian life is all about. Uh, we have I say this a lot. I'll say it again, and I can't get into the depths of it today. Um, um, maybe I'll get, get a chance to come back and explain it a little more, but we, are we have Americanized the Bible. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we are, we have taken the Bible and we have adapted it to the, to the American dream. And we know the American dream is, uh, a life of prosperity, health, um, you know, no problems, no difficulties, vacation, Instagram pictures, sort of the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can achieve anything. And so we have taken those values, those American values, and we're all very thankful to live in a country with such a high standard. And we're very blessed to be a part of the, uh, America. I'm not saying anything wrong with America. God bless the USA. But we have taken a lot of those mentalities and we have used scripture to sort of enhance those without really going back and not really knowing if those values really match up with Biblical values. And I, I want to share with you a scripture. Uh, it's a little lengthy, but it's really so good and juicy. You really just can't decide where to jump off. So it's just easier just to read the whole thing. And it's very familiar for a lot of you. If you've read, if you've, uh, if you've done any kind of, you've been around church at all, or you've listened to people, um, teach or to minister, I guarantee you've heard this verse before. But uh, it's just so good, and I want to read it for you today. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. And um, the first six verses, Paul is dealing with the the light of the gospel of Christ. But then verse number 7, he sort of begins to change his tone. And he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power uh, may be of God and not of us. And then he kind of gives this breakdown. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not confused. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For who, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the spirit of faith, according to that is written, I believe, therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up, uh, raise us up with Jesus and present us with you for all things are for your sakes that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now this is another beautiful part here. Verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Why don't we lose heart? Because even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then he says in verse number 17, which is just does not, this verse just does not fit with our mentality. For our light affliction which is yet, for, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And if you would let me for a moment, I'd like to read that to you again uh, in the New Living Translation to give a little more of a modern twist on some of the wording. Verse number seven, again, we're going to read out of the New Living Translation. If you're not really sure what that is, just in your Bible app, more than likely, if you're reading from Bible, it says NLT. If it doesn't, give the whole word. So the NLT says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. 
This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in an eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believe in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things which cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will see will last forever. Now, there's so much here. And and, and uh, for time's sake, I don't, I'm not going to be able to break it all down. There's so much in that that really does not need interpretation. It, it really, uh, it really just sort of speaks for itself and doesn't necessarily need about a bunch of commentary. Uh, but, uh, I want to go through, if you would allow me today, um, and I want to, uh, go through all the things here in this verse, but I want to go from the front, I want to go from the end to the beginning. Because I think that gives us sort of a different perspective than necessarily taking it as it is written. Um, and it really starts there at the ending statement here in chapter 4. That it says that the things which are seen are temporary, but the unseen things are eternal. And uh, it doesn't take much to know that we are driven by the temporal. We are driven and we are entering in once again to another holiday season. And the holiday season is driven by things that we can see. We all like decorations. We all like uh, to, to, to celebrate with family and friends. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not speaking that we should stop doing that. But it's this is a, a season of time that is driven by the temporal. Some may uh, even go into debt this uh, next month to buy things for a loved one or children or whoever, and uh, they will buy on credit and go into debt so that that person on Christmas Day has something to open because it is what we expect. It's a part of this sort of experience we've created. But it's all temporary. There's nothing more frustrating, and my kids are listening, and so uh, they'll have to just ask for forgiveness, ask, uh, 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 forgive me for saying it later. But I remember my parents saying the same thing. So I, get, I think it's the circle of life of parenting. There's nothing as a parent. Well, I say nothing. That's a little dramatic. This is It's very frustrating as a parent to uh, spend time Christmas trying to find your kids toys or whatever, especially when they're younger and they get toys. And then uh, by June or July, you find those toys over in the corner unplayed with. And uh, you you see these things and it's frustrating. And every year it's like, guys, we, we get you toys, but you don't play with them more than a cup. I remember parents saying the same thing. You play with it a week and then it goes over in the corner. Sort of the circle of life, I guess, as parents, right? Because for so many of us, it's the next thing. It's off to the next thing. It's off to that next thrill, that next uh, that next purchase. I mean, we have these things right here. Uh, that we use every day uh, to function, and yet for most of us, there's some of you, I, I know some of you out there, I won't name any names, some of you out there, you, you're okay with the phone if it's four, five, six years old, and you're okay with it, it does what it needs to do, but there's others, and I'm probably more in this category, that if there's something better out there that does more things, I want that. It was really hard for me, I went like a, almost a three-year cycle without a new phone, and um 
it was itchy for me because there was things this my old phone couldn't do, but the new phones could do, right? And then someone had the newer phone and had the better camera. And I'm looking at my camera going, my camera's not that great. I want, but you know what's so sad is probably what March or April, May, whenever the next cycle is, they'll come up with another phone. In September, there'll be an iPhone 14 or whatever you're, if you're a Samsung person, we're praying for you. But even if you're a Samsung person today and you have a phone, you got that next cycle, right, that you're looking for because it's always off to something else. And Paul sort of alluding to this because these things that we're searching for, they're temporary. There's nothing wrong with having things. I don't believe there's anything wrong with having things within context. It's amazing to me that we live in a country where it seems like everywhere you turn, they're building storage units because we Americans have so much stuff. We've lost room in our house for it, so we have to go external to that. And I'm not here to get on that soapbox. There have been times where we've had a storage unit for various reasons. But the problem I'm saying is, is that there's a temporariness to all of this. And we spend so much time, so much effort, so much sweat to make the temporary our focus. But Paul has just laid down sort of this, uh, in, in, in just a gut punch of a, of a, of a, uh, of, um, of a statement here before he makes the statement that the, you know, we look at the things which are seen and we should look at things that are not seen, but that wasn't the whole context. He really laid the foundation in verse 17 because he makes the statement for our light affliction is yet for a moment because it works in us a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. And, and, and if you don't know Paul's story, we, we love Paul's story, right? Because we, 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 we get enamored by all the accolades that Paul had. Man, we, you know, Paul did this and Paul did that. I don't know if any of us, including me, I'm saying this, I don't know if I could have lived Paul's life. I mean, I, the highlight reel is amazing, right? He's Paul. He's got, you know, prison doors opening. Um, he's got, you know, King, he's speaking to kings and he's, you know, considered to be the, the chief apostle of the church. He's got all these, uh, biblical books attributed to him. I mean, most of the New Testament is written by him. I mean, who wouldn't want to be this guy? But when you peel back the layer of this and you get to the deeper parts, I don't know if any of us would truly trade with Paul. We'd love to have his accomplishments, but I don't know if we would want what he went through. And he says it's a light affliction. And uh, I know a lot of you know this, but some may not know this today. Let's just look at what those light afflictions he was referring to uh, might have been. Because later on, this is in chapter 4, later on in chapter 11, in the back part of the letter of he's writing, he gives us this whole breakdown of what he's talking about. And here's the pedigree of his light affliction, okay? If I said light affliction today, um, I might describe it as the fact of I stubbed my toe or my light affliction is I had to wait in line at McDonald's seven minutes instead of five minutes. Or I pulled up to Chick-fil-A and the line was wrapped around the building once and it was a struggle to stay there to get my nuggets and chicken sandwich. That's a light affliction. That's when I think of light affliction... I'm thinking, you know, the fact of inconvenience. I went to the grocery store and they were out of milk. I had to go to the next place. Or I went to, uh, um, you know, the gas station and they were out of my favorite candy bar. So I had to go to the next one. That's a light affliction. That's what I would consider a light affliction. Let's look at what Paul considered to be a light affliction. He says, I've worked harder, but I've been in prison more often. Been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. And now he goes through some specifics. Five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. Once, I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. 
I have traveled many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, endured many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Does anybody watching today can can you can you even touch ten percent of that? I mean, I've gone through some stuff in my life, but I don't know if I can ever equate what I've gone through to any of that. And here is the great apostle Paul, and he takes all that and he lumps it into this word: "My light affliction is but for a moment." And then he proceeds that statement. So how do you live that your light affliction? We're going to walk our way back here for a moment. So bear with me here. We're not quite to the punchline yet. We're, we're, we're working our way back. So there's this decision we've got to make. Are we looking, are we going to look at the temporal or are we going to look at the eternal? What are we going to, what are we going to focus our, our, our energy on? Doesn't mean we don't, we don't live with temporal things. I mean, obviously you've got to pay bills. You've got to uh, pay your rent or your mortgage, or you've got to be able to go out to the grocery store and buy food. You've got to be able to put gas in your car. You've got to be able to put clothes on your back. You know, there's certain things that, okay, yes, I get it. There are some things that we've got to do because there are temporal things that are needed to survive here. Although Paul sort of figured out a way to survive without it. So I'm not suggesting... That's, you know, some take this to the literal and they go, well, that means I just stay home all day and pray because that's eternal and I'll just let my family suffer. The Bible says um, that a man who doesn't provide for his family, not good, right? And unfortunately, we live in a area of the country where it's not just the man, but it takes a full family effort to survive in this area of the country. Uh, and even more so, as it seems like every time you go to the grocery store, prices continue to go up. So I understand that part. I'm not suggesting this extreme lifestyle of sort of seclusion and sort of a like living in a, a monastery uh, moment where you just walk around all day in your sort of secluded life, only devoting yourself to God and sort of detached from reality. But what are you focusing on? What's what's the what's the what's the goal in your life? Is it to accumulate more temporal things, or is it to add to your ex, your eternal bank account? When you die, one of those bank accounts is going to have more in it than the other. The problem is the one bank account you can't spend after you die. The other bank account is going to determine all of eternity. So every day, are you putting money in? Which bank account are you investing in? And Paul says the reason for this is, is because we're going to have affliction. He calls it light affliction. I'm not quite there. I don't look at some of the stuff I've gone through or go through as light affliction. By the grace of God, hopefully one day I'll be able to say, you know what, man, that's light affliction. Sometimes I could say it's light affliction. Other times it feels heavier than light affliction. But Paul's making the statement that in comparison, the the affliction on earth is so light comparison to the weight of, the magnitude of eternity and what I'm going through here that seems to be frustrating. It seems to be disheartening, seems to just feel like it's unfair, that it seems like I get trouble and difficulty, but it's working on me a far more exceeding internal weight of glory. Like what I'm going through now is not really, may not be affecting now. It may feel like I'm being punished or, 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 or shortchanged now, but it's filling up my eternal bank account. And he breaks that down. So how do I get there? How do I live like that? I live like that because I don't lose heart. Why do I lose heart? How can I live by not losing heart? I live because I understand that the outward man is going to perish and it perishes every day, but the inward man is renewed day by day. So again, that internal Man is growing stronger if I'm walking with Jesus Christ. And because of that, I don't lose heart because it's that eternal and understanding in the invisible that gives me strength so I don't lose heart. If you're living today and you're losing heart or you're giving up or you're feeling hopeless today, the remedy today is not just simply say, well, you know, Jesus loves you. Does he love you? Yes. 
But the remedy is you've got to change some things in your life. You, you may need to change some perspective. You may need to change some priority. Because what you're really hopeless in is that God's going to fix your life and make it the way you want it here on earth. That's how you lose hope. But if you realize that God is the one that's in charge of all this, and I say that and some of you panic and go, well, if he's in charge, he's doing a poor job. Well, he may be doing a poor job to our American standards. But if we allow the Holy Ghost today to work on us, we'll understand that it may seem poor to an American standard where our life is not getting to the point where we want it to be. But it's working in us an external and far more exceeding way to glory. Paul gets through all this, but he kind of gives this back and forth here that we go further up because he says we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Meaning we're dealing with things around us, but even though it's happening, we're not crushed by it. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And he's given it perplexed. And we were, we, yesterday we had a, um, um, uh, Shane and Trish Bailey's, uh, discipleship group had a fellowship and so we were sitting around the table and we were chatting uh, a group of us were chatting and um and uh, several of the, the members of the small group were sort of laughing a little bit because they are going through some things in their uh life and in conjunction with that in their walk with god and if you ask them uh, about about it you know what's going on i don't know where god where's god taking you i don't know how do you know when you get there i don't know and, and we were laughing because it seems very relatable because I feel very much in that situation right now in a lot of ways, not just in life, but in, in where, you know, as, as Antioch West is, and those of you have been on this journey, you understand the difficulty of where we've been. Here we are, November 14th, 2021, and we're still operating the same way we did in March of 2020 when COVID started. And there's a part of me, even though I know God's working, I know he has a plan. I know that plan is something special. There's a part of me that still lives in perplexity. But I can wake up every day, even in perplexity, and not be in despair. See, getting answers, and I'm learning this. I'm not there yet. So please, none of this is telling you that I'm an expert. I'm working through all of this with you as well. Getting answers does not bring peace. We live thinking that answers will produce peace. If I could just know, if I could just understand, or if I, I could just see, or if God would just tell me. There's no scriptural evidence at all that say that answers bring peace. In fact, it says really the opposite. Because the scripture says, peace is superior or surpasseth understanding so the lie is that peace is related to understanding if i know then i can have peace but in reality peace and understanding don't have to coincide they're not connected in fact sometimes understanding can lead to lack of peace really sometimes not knowing takes away your peace and then sometimes knowing takes away your peace very few times in my life has God given me the full understanding of why, but the few times he has, I got to be honest with you, it didn't really make, I'm going to use an old country saying, it didn't make a hill of beans because it didn't make the situation change. If God came right now and told you specifically every single thing he's doing in your life and the why to it, I don't know necessarily if that's going to, change anything it's not going to bring you peace so that's why paul can say we're perplexed but not in despair why because paul understood how to separate his peace from his understanding he understood how to separate his peace from his circumstances that's why paul was the one that said let the peace of god rule and guide you we as as human beings we relate peace, which is really a word for tranquility. That's why we, 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 we think of peace in the natural as tranquility, right? Peace is the absence of everything, right? I can be at peace when someone dies, we say rest in peace, right? Because 
they're now their fight is over. You know that what if you know they died of something like you know cancer or whatever it is. We say you know rest in peace because our idea of peace and the natural is tranquility, right? We think of peace as like this beautiful meadow with birds chirping and gentle wind and willow trees and flowers and beautiful grass and laying there on a picnic blanket, you know, looking at nature and the beautiful stream and the mountains off in the distance, and that looks peaceful to us. We say, wow, that's very peaceful. God's version of peace and man's version of peace are not equivalent. I don't know why I'm on this today. Lord, help us, help us. Someone needs to hear this. Because man's version of peace, if you ever go to, even the Christian bookshop gets it wrong, in my opinion. You go to the Christian bookshop and um, they had, they, there's, I don't know if actually there's very few left. Are there any left in the area? There's a few. I'd ask the expert over here because she knows better than I do. There's there's a few left, but years ago there used to be the Christian bookshop around, and some you always go in there and they had pictures on the wall. And every time you say peace, there's always this beautiful, tranquil picture. But I don't know how you are, but the peace of God I've experienced doesn't really have tranquility attached to it because I've said it before. My wife and I laugh about it even now. Nothing kind of more sort of, um, I'll use the word Paul used, perplexing than to be in utter chaos and even in misery, but have peace. If you look at peace from man's definition, you get this beautiful, wonderful picture. If you look at peace through God's definition, you see chaos and destruction and just craziness. But in the middle of that, this peace. But Paul says, I'm perplexed, but not in despair. How can you live in perplexity, but not in despair and live hopeless? Because your perplexity only drives you to a place of peace. And so Paul's making this, 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 this distinction here because he gives this sort of, okay, we're hard pressed, but we're not, we're not crushed. Meaning, we're making it. it. It's it's difficult, but we're going to be okay because we know that that crushing, that hard, is forming us into a mold here. And we're perplexed. We're not in despair. And then he says we're persecuted, but not forsaken. Wow. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And then he says struck down, but not destroyed. All of this is such a beautiful back and forth and, and very inspirational if you read it. I mean, you can read this and, 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 I, and you can make this sound awesome because it just, I mean, this is just, forgive me for a second, but you can make this sound so inspiring. I mean, give me some, give me some music, some just, you know, powerful, moving, cinematic movement, a mu- music, and you read this. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, it's like, yeah, we got it, yeah. Let's go, yeah. Let's charge hell with a water gun, because God's got this. Until we get there and realize our water gun doesn't have any water, and we're like, oh, great. Sounded great. I was pumped up, man, ready to go. Let's do this thing. Because I really honestly think Paul wasn't trying to inspire. Paul was trying to bring some perspective to things. He wasn't trying to give a rah-rah speech here to the Corinthians. Hey, Corinthians, guess what, dudes? Listen, man, you're hard-pressed. I mean, come on, let's be frank. I'm not making fun. This is, you know, y'all know me. You know I'm not making fun. But you can't, you, you, I can get you running around your living room right now. I could get you running around your living room right now. I could get you dancing in front of your favorite rocking chair right now if I just put a little soul in this verse. Because all I got to do is says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. See, all some of y'all already felt that right there. Just went through your living room right there. Just yield to that. Come on, somebody. Come on, we got to have some fun. Good Lord, you've been staring at my face for a year and a half. It's rough, okay? I'm trying to bring some lightness to this because after a while, I know some of y'all just turned me off and just listen to the sound. I can't see that man's face one more time. Because we can make it sound good. We are perplexed, but yet not despaired. 
Sounds good, right? But in reality, when I wake up in the morning, my my perplexity is not going away. I'm going to be hard-pressed. And if I just think it's an inspirational, go get it, Joel, you got it, without any kind of understanding of the context of that, I'm going to be shouting on Sunday and depressed on Monday. Because you got to understand what was Paul really about. And then he starts it all off. This entire change starts this off with this statement. Verse 7. This is sort of the, the opening thesis to the rest of all of this where Paul's going through all of these things. This idea of the light affliction, the difficulty, the, the ups and downs, the, the struggle. I mean, basically saying we're facing death every day. And that wasn't a, that wasn't just a, 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 a funny saying. That wasn't just something to make people, that was legit. Every day they're facing death. To be a Christian during this period of time when this was written was illegal. It wasn't, it wasn't just a fact of, well, you know, no, it was illegal. And especially, and even more so, if you're a Roman citizen, I mean, if you were a Jew, because by that point in time, forgive me for a little history lesson here, but by that point in time, uh, Judaism was uh, recognized by the Roman government. So you could be a Jew and practice your faith openly, and it was uh, okay. But if you were a Christian, you were it was illegal, and basically you were taking your life in your own hands. So... It was very dangerous for Jews to become a Christian because there were several things there. They were leaving a legal religion and going to an an illegal religion. Also, they were abandoning their Jewish faith with, we understand Paul was a part of that crew. They were being chased down by one side, chased down by the Romans. So that was difficult. But then if you're a Gentile and you became a Christian, not only were you, were you, going to an illegal religion, but you're now abandoning the state religion of Rome, paganism, and there are things as a Roman citizen you had to do that if you were a Christian, you no longer wanted to participate in, but if you didn't participate in those things, you would lose not only societal status, but you would put your family in peril. So when Paul said we were facing death every day, that wasn't simply the fact we had to get in our car and drive the beltway today. It was legitimately we're facing death every day. But he makes the statement, all of this is predicated on this statement. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of God may, that the excellence of power may be of God and not of us. Have you ever stopped and thought for a moment? Maybe you don't feel this way. You ever stopped for a moment and thought about the, that the all powerful, all knowing God of heaven and earth has chosen to dwell in someone like you and me. Maybe you sit here today and you think you're all that and a bag of chips. Maybe you feel like you've got the whole happy meal. I am of several fries and some crusty nuggets short of being a full happy meal. And to think about this all-powerful, all-knowing God of heaven and earth chooses to dwell in me? That's very humbling if you think about it. And what's even crazier, forgive me for going, this is not where I want to go today over the next few minutes before we end, but to me to have the audacity and the arrogance to even tell God how he should live and run and do and work in my life, I mean, come on. What is wrong with me? But God, you know, you. this is it. Really? Forgive me for a second here for, uh, you, you can't, you can't, you can't move past this. That God could have chosen anything in any way to demonstrate who he was and to abide on this earth. Yet he chose to abide in the hearts of broken men and women. People like me who seem like half the time I can't get in my own way. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Yet he chooses to abide in me. What an amazing... I mean, it's just... When you try to wrap your head around it for a moment, you just... 
It almost takes your breath away. Wait a minute. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that said, let there be light, the God that walked with Adam, the God that spoke to Noah, the God that stood and communed with Abraham, the God who walked with Moses, the God who anointed David, the God who lived with Peter, James, and John, the God who spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, the God who visited John on the Isle of Patmos and brought revelation That same God, not a lesser God, not God 3.0, not God 7.0, not God junior, junior, not God to the fourth, but that same God now abides in me, this guy. And what's even worse, I've got every single thing that would keep him from wanting to live in me. I've got sin. I've done things that, thank God, the blood of Jesus Christ was there. Every day I feel like I fall short. But yet, his word said in almost one of the most beautiful statements of love ever written, Romeo and Juliet don't have anything on this statement. Shakespeare couldn't even have penned something so beautiful. He makes this statement to you and I, while you and I were sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest act of love that's ever been given in the history of all mankind, the greatest act, the most selfless act that Christ would would come to earth, that God would send his only begotten son to die for you and I. And he died for us At our worst. I sit here today and just uh, for a moment, I've got to just take a moment. Forgive me for this. I don't know how you feel when you think about that. And maybe, maybe you're not there today, but forgive me for a moment. But it just makes me want to just have to stop for a moment and just say, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love me so much. That you cared for me and loved me despite of me. And that you've chosen to abide in me. In me. And that my mistakes don't send you running, but my mistakes bring you closer to me. Because your love penetrates even the darkest places of my heart. I stand in awe today the fact that you love me. I stand in awe today that you've chosen to abide in me. God, I feel like the words thank you don't even scratch the surface of all that you deserve, the praise and honor that you deserve. But God, I stop for a moment. I just give you glory and honor. I give you thanks. I give you thanks today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Paul makes this statement. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earlier on in the Bible, in Jeremiah, God is talking to Jeremiah and he wants to try to explain to him what's going on. And he tells Jeremiah to go to the potter's house and to observe the potter. Another place in Scripture Using the same analogy, the Bible says, when does the clay say to the potter what it should be? Let me ask you a question. If you had unlimited power for a day and could do anything, what would it be? What would you do? If you could change anything in the world, what would you change? Most of us, if I could be honest with you today, most of us would answer that question by changing something that would better our lives or better the lives of those around us. If you had unlimited power for a day and you could do anything, what would you do? Most of us, you know, you'd give me the noble answer, but deep down inside, if you gave the real answer, you'd probably do something to make your life better because we're conditioned to avoid pain. We're, vis- we're conditioned to avoid difficulty, trouble. It's built into us. 
You don't have to teach a child to avoid pain. You don't have to teach a child to avoid uh, danger. It's built into a child. When they reach out and touch something hot, it's instinctive that they pull back. You don't have to tell them that. You warn them, but it's built into us. We are conditioned to avoid pain. We are conditioned to avoid being uncomfortable. You ever try to lay a child down when they're uncomfortable? Good luck. What do we do? We try to make them comfortable. We give pillows and blankets. We're a blanket family. Well, I'm not. I'm usually too hot-natured. My family, the rest of my family is... If you come to my house, you will find we are the, we have blankets, 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 and more blankets. If you visit my, the beds of my children, you find that most of them have multiple blankets on their bed. Some for warmth, some for comfort. Because we know we sleep better when we're comfortable, right? Have you ever heard of a mattress commercial where they said, Try our new Tempur-Pedic Matric. It's as hard as a rock. You won't sleep at all. You'll feel like you're laying on concrete. It's amazing. It will do wonders for your back pain. They don't say that. They got the man or the woman there laying like on a cloud of happiness. The woman, you know, always, I don't know who, maybe you sleep like this. But in every, you know, those commercials, they lay over like this. They have such peaceful looks. You know, this mattress will keep you warm and cool at the same time. It will it will align your lumbar so that when you wake up, your back feels like you're 10 years old again. You're like, oh my God, I gotta go buy that. I've gotta buy that mattress. Gotta get that mattress. Or you know, you get maybe you have one. We don't, but maybe you do. You have the uh, select. What's it called? The select comfort, right? What's your sleep number? I'm a 47. I'm a 51 because that's what's comfortable to me. Because we know you got to be comfortable. We want to be comfortable. We buy shoes because they're more comfortable. Clothes, they're more comfortable. We're built for comfort. We want to be comfortable. We love comfort. And if we could change things, it would be changing things to provide more comfort for us. Or if we could change something in the world, we would change something that would provide more change and comfort for the world. Let's end world hunger. What a noble cause, right? Think about that for a second. I'm, 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 I want to get to the punchline here. I'm running out of time. But think about that. And, and, and I know this is going to be controversial. And I, I don't want to say this because I, I am online and I don't know who's watching. And probably someone may take this out of context. But hopefully they'll give me the benefit of doubt of looking at the, the, the context here. But to think of the idea, let's end world hunger. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's horrible to know that people in this world and even in America go without food. I'm not saying we shouldn't have to try. We, we shouldn't try to feed. The Bible talks about feeding hungry. But do you really believe that God doesn't see the hunger of this world? That somehow our Heavenly Father looks down on this earth and is somehow ignorant of the fact that there are people that are hungry? So even if you could end world hunger today, the whole point of that is to try to make life more comfortable here. When you realize, Paul said, all of this that's working in us is for a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory because we're these earthen vessels. Tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house. And ultimately we know that all of that God is doing in my life, all of the things Paul talked about, the perplexedness, the the being pushed and broken down and knocked down and, and struck down and, and chasing death and all of the frustration and the outward, all this stuff. What is he doing? I'm being shaped. I'm being changed. I'm being molded for this to be this vessel that can contain him. So in the next five minutes or so, as we end, I want to sh tell you some of the most common mistakes. Now, I'm not a potter. Never done it. I've seen it done before. But I'm not a potter. I don't know how to shape and mold pottery. But there are apparently some mistakes 
common mistakes that when you're creating pottery, you should avoid. And I believe every one of these mistakes is God has these in his mind when he's working on us. Number one, one of the biggest mistakes people make when they're shaping pottery is not wedging the potter, the clay properly. Now, what does that mean? That means they just take clay and they throw it on the wheel and they, they, they just go. They don't wedge the clay. They don't and go up and, and I don't have the time or the really true understanding of all of this. You can easily Google it and they'll show you. They got videos of on it. I watched several of them. Still really don't understand it all. But wedging is the process in which you take the clay before you even start. And one of the purposes of wedging is that when you're molding the clay and you're wedging it before you begin, you're getting the air pockets out of the clay. You're getting some stuff out of the clay that if it doesn't get out of the clay, when the clay gets formed, it's going to be weak and brittle and break because there are clay that aren't ready to be molded. And so the first thing you need to do is when you get that clay is you begin to work on it. You press it. You squeeze it. You shape it. You begin to get some kind of shape there before it even goes on the wheel, before it's even in the process. It's being worked on to get some stuff out of it. So, why does God feel like sometimes he allows things to just come and just push on all of us? Because there's some stuff. He can't even form us into what he's going to make us until there's some stuff worked out of us. Because if he puts us in the process of formation before he's wedged us, ultimately, it's going to cause us to have some areas in our makeup that are brittle. And it won't come out now, but when there's pressure pride applied down the road. When pressure is applied later, the pot will break. So you have to wedge properly. You have to keep that. The second thing is, if you look at a potter's wheel, the most, the second mistake is not properly centering. This seems like obvious, right? But not properly centering the clay on the wheel. Why is this important? Because you feel like that wheel spins, right? There's a part of the process by using centrifugal force and the, and the, and, and the clay spinning, it allows you to shape and mold the clay. But the problem is if it's off center and it's not in the perfect spot, you get uneven walls. You can create something, but it's uneven. And as you're applying pressure, to build your walls, they're not coming out evenly because there's other parts. It's not centered. That's why we always have to come back to the center. That beautiful, wonderful song I love so much. Jesus, be the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life. From beginning to the end. Be the center. I have to keep him centered. I have to be centered in him. I've got to be, he's got to be number one. Because if my life gets off or if I get off center in my life, in the formation process, my life's going to come out uneven or call it this way. I'm going to be out of balance. Being centered provides balance. And I know people who practice religion and as they're being formed and shaped, their life becomes more and more out of balance. They're hard-edged over here and they're soft over here. They're staunch over here, but they're back. We call them hypocrites. We call them two-faced, whatever you want to call it. Those are people that have not been centered. You've got to be centered. You've got to stay centered. You've got to keep things in the center because that's what causes the pot, the, the shaping to be even. That's why God always seems to balance things out in my life. There's word and there's spirit. There's a balance to all this stuff. Why? Because I need to stay centered. I need to stay balanced so that I am formed and shaped evenly. Now this one's awesome. I love this one. One of the common mistakes is made is the use of water. Now, if you don't have enough water, the clay gets hard. You can't shape it. And so, not enough water, not enough water in my life, spirit, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not enough spiritual activity in my life. My, I get hard. I get really hard and it's, it, it, I can't be shaped. 
I need to keep that spirit of God, that living water in my life on a daily basis because that's what keeps me molded. That's what keeps me being able to be molded and shaped by the hand of the potter is that constant. So if I'm not fellowshipping with the spirit, if I'm not letting the spirit flow through me, if there's not enough water in my life, I can't be shaped anymore. And eventually I'll become so hard. The only option God has is to take it and start over again because it's hardened too fast and therefore you can't shape it any longer it's got to go back to the beginning back to the wedging back to the breaking down and getting some flesh out of it so it can be put back on the center of the wheel so having the water in my life now too much water meaning all i want to do is just take well it's all about the spirit there's no word in my life and there's no there's no discipline in my life there's no there's no there's no there's no uh uh um um uh uh um boundaries and things working in my life if I just have all spirit and I was like well it's all you know some people take it to the extreme you can get easily shaped walls but they have no strength that's why God's word says we're to be in the world but not of the world he never tried to take us out of the world there's a balance to all this now this is an interesting one I didn't know this but One of the common mistakes that new potters make is rushing the process. And so they begin to shape that. And when they begin to press down, if you don't take it in a slow pace, especially when you're starting to center, you center the clay and you're starting to creep that, creep the initial crevice of the pot. If you go too deep, you will make the bottom flimsy and you'll be forced to start again. So that's why sometimes it feels like there's just, it's slow. The process is slow. Why? Because you can't rush the process. If you rush the process, you're going to end up causing problems down the road. The other thing that's interesting is wheel speed. The speed of the wheel is important. And depending on what you're creating, you want the wheel slower or faster. And if the wheel speed is off, You cannot create what you're wanting because if it's too slow, you can't build it high enough. If it's too fast, it goes too high and you can't get the shape you want. So as a potter, you have to understand the proper pace and speed of the wheel to match what you're creating. That's why it feels like sometimes there's parts of my life just seems like it's slow. It's never going to happen. Other times it feels like I can't keep up. It's so fast. Why? Because it's different seasons of shaping and forming in my life. But here's the wonderful part. It's the amazing part about it. If you look at this picture here, you've seen pictures like this before. Maybe you've actually seen a live demonstration of a potter. What's interesting here is you have two parts of pressure. If you notice on the right hand there, there's external pressure. The left hand is providing internal pressure. Now what's amazing about this is this. That if you allow, if there's too much pressure applied on the right hand and not enough equal pressure on the left hand, you will get walls that form very quickly. So it'll grow rapidly, but it will collapse. If you put too much internal pressure and not balance it with external pressure, you push the pot out and it creates flat and you don't get shape. So a potter through skill and understanding the material learns to work with applying the correct amount of internal and external pressure together, working in unison, the pressure from the outside and the inside, work in unison. Why? To create the necessary shape so that when it gets to the top, it will be formed and strong and more importantly, it will stand. What does that mean for you and I today? That's why I guess it, I hate to break it to you. All right? We come all the way here to tell you this. God's not going to change everything. God's not going to fix all your problems. He may just change problems, but he's always going to be. Why? Because if he took all of the external pressure away, look, look, if he took the right hand of pressure away of external situations, He couldn't form you the way he wants. And if it's all internal pressure, 
He's going to push you out. But see, the problem is if you have external pressure with no internal, you, you seem to sprout rapidly, but you collapse. That's why Paul says, I am perplexed, but not in despair. What does that mean? I found the balance between external and internal pressure. I have the perplexity of external pressure, but I have the power of the internal pressure of peace pressing against it. Oh, come on, somebody. Yes, I've got outside pressure. I'm perplexed. I'm beaten down. I'm struck down. I'm frustrated. I'm going through things. But see, on the other side, I've got an internal pressure that's pushing against the external pressure. And when those two forces come together, something begins to form in me that causes me to grow. If I don't have internal pressure pushing out against, I can get collapsed. I can fall. I can be broken. But if I've got the peace of God pushing against my circumstances, my circumstances won't change but when peace and problems come together growth takes place we got situations right now we're going through in our life that we ask God God what you know this is part of it say God why, why is this going through you know this doesn't you know you're supposed to be a God of this and God of that and you're allowing this to happen allowing that to happen and what's going on with all this why can't you just fix it all I'm not seeing the way God sees it. I'm trying to get my life to to match up with my idea of a utopic existence. And God's not interested in making my life a utopia. God's more interested in shaping me into what he wants to shape. And in order to correctly shape me, he's got to provide some external pressure. So sometimes he uses... External pressure of life, of failure, of difficulty, financial pressure, emotional pressure, pain, problems, difficulties, whatever it is. He's going to allow external pressure. I don't care if you pray fast and live in a hole the rest of your life. If you're going to walk with Jesus, there is external things built into the process. Hello, Paul, 39 strikes. Hello, Paul, shipwrecked. Hello, Paul, stoned, beaten, hopeless, sleepless, hungered, all of these things. Why? Because there was this internal thing in Paul that was powerful. The revelations he was receiving. And if God did not balance the internal and the external, he could not have created something so beautiful. You know what's amazing about God? I'm determined. I hate to break it to you. Some of you may feel this way. Some of you don't. I'm determined the, the, the greater place you get into God, it means there's just more stuff in your life. Not less. I think the greater you get with God, the greater you walk with him, the more revelation he shows you. He just means there's going to be more external stuff he allows in your life. You say, I don't believe that. I believe you just get to the point where, okay, where's your scripture to bake that off of, Einstein? Because look, Look at the disciples. The greater God used them, he balanced it out with greater pressure. Look at the revelation, John. I mean, John was on, John got to see visions of Jesus Christ in the future, but he saw those visions with external pressure of being on an island as a, as a, as a, a prisoner because they had boiled him alive and he didn't cook. Look at all the disciples. All of them died a martyr's death. Except John, and we know his story wasn't exactly Disneyland worthy. So for those of you that think you're going to get in place with God, the further you get, the less God's going to allow. Just going to break it down. The further you get in God, the more God's going to place on you. The more things that are going to come in your life, the more junk you're going to deal with. Why? Because the internal and external have to match up. Because it's working in you a far more exceeding internal weight of glory. Father, you see every person that's watching today. You see exactly what they are going through. You know the difficulties that they are facing, and you know the questions that they have. You said you know the end from the beginning. But, Lord, you are the sovereign God. You have no obligation to tell me anything. You are the potter on the clay. The clay doesn't ask questions. The clay doesn't get to choose. The clay simply has to yield itself to the power of the potter. So today, Father, 
we humble ourselves before you today. Forgive us as the clay, forever suggesting that we can tell you, the potter, how to run our lives. But Father, I pray today that you would give us the grace, whatever season we're in, that you would give us the grace to work in our life a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So many of us are dealing with external pressure. But Lord, show us today the power of the internal pressure that can push back the forces of the external. And when external and internal meet, growth happens. Father, I'm praying today, let us see things the way you see it. Let us see and understand that ultimately all of this that we see is temporal, but the greatest thing that you work on is the things we can't see, the eternal. Your first and foremost concern is what we can't see. Our first and foremost concern is what we can see. So Father, today, by your grace, let us see the way you see it. You're not trying to make our lives perfect. You're not trying to make our lives pain-free, problem-free, pressure-free. You're trying to mold us and make us and create us into what you have designed us to be. Father, in the name of Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you today, afresh and anew. We surrender ourselves to your will and your way. We surrender ourselves to you, Father. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.